I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Every Day Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Every Day Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we are changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. Start your week with the Hello Monday podcast. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, including your stories. Send them to ouramericanstories.com. They're some of our favorites. Up next, a story from the Atlanta History Center, a great museum where you can see exhibits like the massive cyclorama painting and a locomotive with a truly unique story, the Texas. Built four years before Lincoln was elected, the locomotive is best known today as the principal pursuit engine in the great locomotive chase, which occurred after Union spies stole her running mate, the General. But the story goes far deeper than that. Here's Jackson McQuig, Vice President of Properties at the Atlanta History Center, with the story. I want to say I was born into it, but I have been a, a fan of railroads and interested in railroads pretty much all my life. That's something that I shared with my dad. And um, growing up in Tampa, Florida with uh, deep roots in Atlanta, Atlanta's history was always of interest to me. And I think that, um, you know, by the age of like 14, I was volunteering at the Florida Railroad Museum, scraping paint and doing all the things that older people didn't want to do, you know, and uh, I've just always been fascinated by trains. I mean, it is just absolutely one of the most fascinating technologies, and I think I'm interested in it because, you know, uh, travel is such a fun thing, and there's no better way to go than traveling by train. You can visit with friends and uh, have a drink, have uh, a meal, look out the window, you can get on a sleeping car and see the, the world go by overnight. I just think there's nothing better. Atlanta is very, very new by com comparison to many cities. Savannah is a century older than Atlanta. Atlanta is only about the uh, same age as Los Angeles. I mean, it's a very new city. 
So when uh, a surveyor for the Western and Atlantic Railroad drove a uh, stake in the ground, a wooden surveyor stake, right about where uh, State Farm Arena is today, Atlanta didn't exist. And Atlanta gradually became a, a railroad hub. One of the uh, nicknames for Atlanta, in fact, is uh, the Chicago of the South. So the locomotive Texas, it's only one of two locomotives left from the Western Atlantic. The very railroad that Atlanta owes its existence to. Uh, if you think about that for a second, the, the tangible links to the city's past are really few. Atlanta's a city that likes to redevelop itself over time. Sherman burned it, it also suffered a cataclysmic fire, and development has really changed the way Atlanta has looked uh, time and time again. But this locomotive, like its sister, the General, date back to the 1850s. This is unusual for Atlanta. My boss likes to say they're the Romulus and Remus of Atlanta. I think that's a great sound bite, um, and he's almost right. But uh, the, the locomotive was one of the two participants in the Great Locomotive Chase which is a uh, Civil War incident of some note and uh, certainly a lot of coverage. The chase involved three different locomotives, a pole car running two miles, and you name it. It's really an interesting story. During 1862, April of 1862 as a matter of fact, there were a group of Union spies that had made it behind Confederate lines, and the effort was to disrupt the Western Atlantic Railroad in order to ultimately take Nashville. And if you could cut Nashville off from the rest of the South, and Chattanooga as well, you would hurt the Confederacy. So they made, they made it behind the lines of the Confederates, dressed in civilian clothes, got on a train, in Atlanta. When the train got to what was called Big Shanty, uh, in those days everybody got off the train to go eat, and in that case breakfast. Uh, there was no club card, to have Bloody Marys and stuff in at that point. So they're the last ones left on the train. Everybody's eating uh, breakfast at the Lacey Hotel, and that gave them their opportunity to steal the locomotive general and head north. And it was to get far ahead tear up track, disrupt telegraph lines, and really put a you know, severe crimp into the Confederacy's war efforts. But what they didn't count on was that the crew of the general decided to give chase to these guys and try to catch the general locomotive as it was going up the line. The pursuers, Captain William Fuller and others, wound up finding the Texas, found that it, you know, it had a good head of steam and it had enough fuel that it could, it could uh, be run to chase after the general. They decided, well, heck, uh, average track speed's 15 miles an hour. Let's do 50. Let's do it in reverse. Let's do it on track that wouldn't be a good industrial siding by today's standards. This is just really rudimentary railroading at that stage. It must have been a frightening ride. I'm really glad that I wasn't on it. I, it, it reflects the lack of caution that only, um, you know, somebody who's pretty youthful can do. And pretty motivated <laughs> by adrenaline, I would argue. Finally, the pursuers wound up catching the Raiders led by James J. Andrews. So they were known as Andrews Raiders. Sounds like a 60s band, but uh, there you have it. So, but they, they, uh, they caught them, captured them, some were hanged, including Andrews, who was hanged here in Atlanta. And the pursuers were celebrated as folk heroes at the time because that was one where the South won one. And so, as a result, it became the famous locomotive that caught up to the general and achieved a degree of fame just because it was the, the one that uh, won the chase, so to speak. And you've been listening to Jackson McQuig telling stories about the thing he loves most. And so many Americans do. Always, this country has been fascinated with train travel. When we come back, more of Jackson's stories and more 
about trains and the great locomotive chase here on Our American Story. Folks, if you love the great American stories we tell and love America like we do, we're asking you to become a part of the Our American Stories family. If you agree that America is a good and great country, please make a donation. A monthly gift of $17.76 is fast becoming a favorite option for supporters. Go to OurAmericanStories.com now and go to the Donate button and help us keep the great American stories coming. That's OurAmericanStories.com. And we return to Our American Stories and the story of Locomotive Texas. When we last left off, Jackson McQuig was telling us about the famous great locomotive chase during the Civil War, which the Texas participated in as the main pursuit locomotive. But there's a lot more to the story than just that. Here again is Jackson with the rest of the story. After the great locomotive chase, it wound up in Virginia because there was a salt mine up there. And of course, at the time, before refrigeration, salt was the way you preserved food. It was actually captured and briefly used by the U.S. Military Railroad for a brief time before it was sent back to Atlanta. The Texas very nearly wound up being cut up for scrap a number of times, and it certainly was very nearly abandoned in, in many cases. Unlike the General, which is the other locomotive that participated in the Great Locomotive Chase, which was preserved in the, it was preserved in the 1880s. Um, it was sort of the one that was seen as the uh, as the one that needed to be preserved. It was a worn-out locomotive by 1900, really by the late 1890s. And historian Mark Brainerd of Chattanooga found that there was this fellow who was the master mechanic. In other words, the the guy in charge of the roundhouse here in Atlanta for the Western and Atlantic and later for the NC and St. L, which absorbed the Western and Atlantic. And he knew about the history of the Texas. There wasn't a lot of interest in preserving it, but he kind of made sure that it never wound up on the retirement roster, that he kept it hit out and busy and I'm sure he'd been told to get rid of the old thing many times, but he kept it as a pet. I mean, you know, this is the equivalent of, uh, of trying to keep a 1940 automobile kicking around with your 2021 Tesla. There's no logical reason why the, the, the locomotive should still be on the roster of the NC and St. L in 1900, but yet it was. But we wound up in a scenario with that engine, we as Atlantans, where it was again, looking like it would be scrapped again. And a fellow by the name of Wilbur Kurtz, later to become known as the technical advisor, Gone with the Wind, an interesting character all the way around, a man who was pretty much consumed with a great locomotive chase to the point where he married the daughter of one of the uh, southern pursuers. Kind of weird, isn't it? He, he began a campaign that actually resulted in the saving of the Texas. And when I say campaign, I mean letters to the editor, uh, a grassroots effort to get the locomotive preserved, in part because the, the general had been preserved. Uh, the Civil War Veterans Group, the Grand Army of the Republic, Union soldiers had helped to see that it got preserved, but the Texas had no such love. So one of the Hearst newspapers here in Atlanta called the Atlanta Georgian, it began a, uh, a campaign right alongside Wilbur Kurtz. It encouraged people to, Atlantans to send in their nickel and dime contributions to help preserve the Texas. Again, all this time it's sitting at the, at the railroad yard waiting to get scrapped, you know. And that effort, while it created a lot of interest, was not successful at first. So, Lo and behold, the, the locomotive owes its very um, preservation, not to that effort, although that helped, but by a group of women who got together and found great interest in saving the locomotive. They called themselves the Ladies of Atlanta, and it was an ad hoc group who effectively went to the president of the NC and St. L Railway uh, and said, you're going to give us this locomotive and we're going to give it to the city of Atlanta 
and we're going to preserve it. And of course, who, how could he disagree with the ladies of Atlanta? He agreed and the, the locomotive was saved. It took six years to get it to Grant Park where it was finally put under a shed on display in the park. But at least it's at the park, right? In 1927, the uh, locomotive was actually put into the same building as the uh, Cyclorama in Grant Park. We moved the locomotive in 2015, um, and it had been there so long, it was literally in a, uh, a basement level behind a 1970s constructed theater where you saw the photo or the uh, intro film about the uh, what the cyclorama was. So we had to uh, extricate the uh, locomotive out of that building by running it through a movie theater, which I think is a first. Oh, and the movie theater was underground, so um, we had to dig down to get to it. It was a truly fun, bizarre day. When we took the locomotive out of Grant Park and out of the old Cyclorama building, put it on a truck, shipped it up to the North Carolina Transportation Museum in Spencer, where I used to work, we really got into seeing what was there. We found out that there wasn't a lot of original Texas there. The tender was from a different locomotive. The frame was only half from the original Texas. The cab was different, the boiler was different, the wheels were different, the cylinders were different. And in fact, the bell was different. You name it, and it was from another locomotive or it had been fabbed. So what did we have here? Well, we found out that the stand, the frame that actually holds the bell onto the locomotive, that was from the original Texas. But we kind of felt liberated to tell other stories about the locomotive's history. And since the great locomotive chase story is told in so many places, uh, we wanted to tell the broader context about railroads and uh, being developers, railroads being city shapers, railroads being our life's blood here in Atlanta to this day. By the way, the decision that we made after determining that the uh, Texas contained a lot of parts for in, from engines that weren't the Texas. We decided to paint it in its 1886 colors, and that was indeed controversial. One of my friends, who I knew would react poorly to the decision, saw a picture on Facebook of the engine just after it had gotten painted at the museum in North Carolina, and tagged me in a post and, and said I had a lot of explaining to do. In fact, this friend of mine accused me of ruining his childhood, and that's a direct quote, and to which, which my response was, well, well, that must have been a pretty bad childhood, you know, I mean, it's, uh, if that was the most significant thing that occurred in it. But, you know, what we say to folks that are maybe a little concerned that it doesn't look like it did during its Civil War years and doesn't have the paint that was on it is, it's just paint. There were three pursuing locomotives in the Great Locomotive Chase, and the other two are razor plates now. They're gone. The Texas got through by the skin of its teeth. And at various points, like we've been discussing, it has been all but forgotten. Through 2015, it was, it was behind uh, glass panels. It was this look-don't-touch artifact. You couldn't go in the cab. You really didn't get to understand too much about its history. It was just this forgotten locomotive it, it was just hard to relate to and you know I'm a museum guy and museum folks well they're just really into like having visitors come and stand at a distance sometimes for from the objects but you know the Texas is a durable object and part of the experience of it is to actually get in the cab and see what it was like to be at the throttle of that little little by today's standards locomotive. And I think people really understand history more when they interact with it physically. And the fact that you can do that with a locomotive that was built in 1856, I think is just kind of fun. While I was waiting for y'all, there were a couple of families that came through and they all went in the cab with a locomotive. Every one of them went into the cab. I think that's neat. They, they just had the ability to stand where history had taken place. 
and that's huge. And no doubt, indeed, it's huge when people can interact with the nation's history. And a special thanks to Monty for producing that piece and bumping into that story in his travels around the country with Robbie. The two did a road trip together, and that's where we discovered Jackson McQuig, and he is the Vice President of Properties at the Atlanta History Center, where they are keeping alive stories about this great southern city. Jackson McQuig's story of the locomotive Texas, here on Our American Story. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, 
We've got you covered. You can build internal resources. That's what the study of psychology is about, building internal resources. Turning towards is one of the most important elements of successful relationships, no matter what kind of relationship it is. The thing that underpins all of this productivity stuff is finding a way to make the journey itself enjoyable. The journey is the destination. The beauty of uncertainty is infinite possibility. When you don't know what's next, you don't know what's next. And thus, anything can be next. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. And today, we have a story from Leslie Leyland Fields. She's an author, a speaker, and a teacher, and she lives in Kodiak, Alaska. This is a story of how she came to write her first memoir, something she thought she'd never do. Here's Leslie. This is the story of a book. Really... It's the story of writing a book I never wanted to write. It's the story of surviving the writing of a book I never wanted to write. But it changed my life in every way. Let me back up. I've always believed in the power of story. I was a voracious reader from a young age, and as soon as I could write, I began creating poems and stories. I grew up in a time and culture when quiet children were the best children, and thinking you were special in any way was the pinnacle of pride, and pride was the worst sin of them all. So when I grew up and became a writer, my main interest was other people's stories. Who would care about me or my life? Yes, my life was not a typical American life, I lived in Alaska, mostly. In the summers, I commercial fished with my new husband and his family on a tiny island in the wilderness with no roads or cars. It was an island with eight people on it, just us. We lived through days and nights of such drama and stories. But even then, other people's stories were much better than mine. So I wrote about other people. By age 40, I had published two collections of stories about fishermen and women. And then I began a third book. This one was different. It was about my own experiences living in the wilderness with my husband, digging a well by hand, hauling water in buckets, building our own house with very few tools, doing the laundry outside in the winter in an old ringer washing machine, prying frozen laundry off the line, and stacking the towels stiff in my arms into the house like a stack of wood. Stories like that. I send it to my agent, Yes, I had an agent. Somehow, earlier that year, I had landed a hot New York literary agent, but she didn't like it. Here's how our first phone call went. Leslie, I really like these essays, but there's one problem. You're not in them. I know. I replied, that's the point. This is about topics much bigger than me, about water, the ethical dilemmas of killing animals, about our wasteful culture, so many important things. It's about universals. Yes, but we don't care about universals unless we care about you. You're completely absent. And nobody wants essay collections now. This has to be your story. You're going to have to turn this into a memoir. A memoir? I gulped. Memoir was a dirty word to me. I equated it with first-person tell-all stories by strippers and smoky bars and with supermarket tabloids of disgraced politicians and ravaged movie stars. Memoir felt indulgent and just a little scandalous. I couldn't do it. And besides, no one would be interested in my life. Uh, no, Kate, I can't do that. And I hung up. But the next week, while teaching a creative writing class, I heard myself say to my students, 
If you want to grow as a person, as a writer, you have to take on new challenges. And then I stopped for a moment to listen to myself. I decided to try. It took a month to get another phone appointment with Kate. The next call went like this. Remember, Kate, you asked me to turn those essays into a memoir and to make it about my life? Yes, of course. Okay, I'll do it. Good. I knew you would. Then I got brave. So, how do you write a memoir? She laughed, or something equally unhelpful. You'll figure it out. It wasn't easy to invite that I into my house. I so wanted to stay invisible. But I started with scenes, the cornerstone of good memoir. Scenes that take the reader straight into the action. Scenes that show a life rather than tell about a life. I wrote about the first day when I officially became a fisherwoman. I remember the process of getting dressed with layer upon layer of sweatshirts, hip boots, rain pants, finally layered so thick and heavy I could hardly walk. I wrote about my first snack and bathroom break on the water, in the boat. Talk about basic. We worked in 18-foot open boats with no cabin and, of course, no toilet. This day, I was out with my new husband, Duncan, and my father-in-law, DeWitt. That scene went like this. It's almost noon now. We've been fishing for four hours. I sit wearily on the wooden seat, looking at the fish on the floor of the skiff. There must be 500 of them, all fat and shiny. The waves slap and slosh our skiff from side to side. I'm hungry, and I need a bathroom break. But how does this happen in an 18-foot boat? There's no cabin on our little wooden pea pod. It's just a glorified rowboat afloat on a great Alaska sea. DeWitt sits heavily in the bow, his black-green raincoat mirroring the dark water below. Well, I guess I gotta shake the dew off my lily, DeWitt intones in a gravelly voice. I can hear his Oklahoma accent, though he left 40 years before, during the Dust Bowl. He grew up poor, picking cotton and working the land. Now he works the seas, but he moves awkwardly in the boats and never seems at home on moving water. Except now. I smile at Duncan and DeWitt and turn around. When they're done, it's my turn. Let me off on that rock over there, Duncan. I point to a cove with a shelf of rock jutting out. In a moment we are there, the skiff rising and plunging in the waters swirling around the rocks. I'm nervously perched in the bow, ready to spring overboard at just the right second. My hands twitch as they grip the rail. I'm motionless, but breathing hard. Jump! Duncan yells as the nose of the skiff rises in the foaming surge. You're not close enough! I shoot behind me. I see DeWitt sitting calmly beside Duncan as if we've done this a hundred times. I can't get any closer! Jump! He shouts as the boat gurgles and sinks now in the trough. I can't leap that distance in all this fishing gear. And if I miss, how did a simple bathroom break become a life and death endeavor? I wrote scenes from my life all summer long. But first, we created a writing studio on our island. My husband and I cleaned out a tiny shed on a dock over the ocean. It was filled to the rafters with decades of junk and old tools. We dragged in two sawhorses, dropped a four-by-eight sheet of plywood on top, and there it was, my desk, my office. The shed wasn't insulated or heated, so even in the summer, with the temperature in the 40s, I sat in a winter coat, hunched over my legal pad or old computer, writing, remembering... As I wrote, the fishing boats rumbled as they passed. The crows and bald eagles screeched overhead. I wrote and I wrote. Then I sent the chapters to Kate. And you're listening to Leslie Leyland Fields and the story of writing a book that she said she never wanted to write. In fact, as she put it, it's the story of surviving writing a book that she never wanted to write. When we come back... More of the story of Leslie Leyland Fields, a regular contributor here on this show. Her story 
about writing her memoir here on Our American Story. love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. You can build internal resources. That's what the study of psychology is about, building internal resources. Turning towards is one of the most important elements of successful relationships, no matter what kind of relationship it is. The thing that underpins all of this productivity stuff is finding a way to make the journey itself enjoyable. The journey is the destination. The beauty of uncertainty is infinite possibility. When you don't know what's next, you don't know what's next. And thus, anything can be next. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. 
Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we continue with our American stories, and we've been listening to author, speaker, and teacher Leslie Leyland Fields. She lives in Alaska and has been brilliantly telling the story of how she came to write her first memoir. Let's return to Leslie. I'm on the phone again now with Kate. Leslie, good scenes here. Graphic, compelling. Her voice is clipped, hurried as usual. The book feels closer, but there's something crucial missing. What is it? I ask with dread, wondering if she's going to tell me to scrap the whole thing and start over. Why did you stay? I understand why you went into the Alaska wilderness, all that, but what kept you after all that happened? And how were you changed at the end? Without that arc, there's no story. Yeah, okay, I say, heart sinking. I know Kate is talking about the inner story. Haven't I taught this to my students? Every story has at least those two layers, the outer story, what happens in the out there world, and the inner story, the deeper story, the psychic, emotional, spiritual story. I knew this before I began the memoir. This was what scared me most about life stories and memoir. But how could I say no to this now? I had signed the book contract. And I knew that if I was going to grow as a writer and as a human being, I needed to take this next step. There were hard questions I needed to ask. Who was that 20-year-old girl, just married, standing in a skiff, trying to keep her balance in the new waters of marriage, living with her in-laws on a remote island in Alaska? Was there something there we all might see about finding and making home in a strange land? I started writing inside each of the significant events of those first years. Whenever I had the chance, I scribbled, digging down layer by layer. I wrote myself back to those days in the skiff, the long hours, the storms, getting sick and still needing to work, to the icy silences between my husband and me. I wrote about the day I jammed clothes and food into a backpack and escaped the island the only way possible by waiting until low tide and marching off down to an empty shack four miles down the beach, gun over my shoulder for bears. I wrote myself back to that near disastrous day when I almost didn't make it home. I insisted on taking the skiff out on an important errand it was going to be a four-hour trip. I insisted on going alone. It was a long way to go, on the ocean, in the winter. A snowstorm came up. I got lost in the total whiteout, and then the engine broke down. I wrote about it, describing how scared I was when it started snowing, when the engine died, when I knew I had drifted out onto the open ocean, when I thought I might die. But the inner story? I didn't know it yet. I was learning again what I thought I already knew are stories about so much more than what happened. It's just as important to know why those things happened, to know what moves and motivates us, and how those moments, large and small, change us, and how they might change our readers, too. I began to write more deeply into those two stories, and it slowly came clear, word by word, what I was doing. In both of those events, I was escaping a place that wasn't mine, an ocean, an island, a life that belonged to my new husband and his family, but it didn't belong to me, yet. It wasn't mine, except by marriage, by proxy. My life was borrowed, shoehorned into whatever cracks I could fit in. Even where we lived, those first three summers, we lived in a tiny loft atop a rickety ladder in an old building. A loft just big enough to hold a bed and a wood stove. We could only stand up in the middle. As I wrote, I realized so much about my life I hadn't seen before. I felt compassion for the young woman I was and for my husband 
For the two of us trying to make a marriage work on a wilderness island with endless nets, ocean, and fish we couldn't control. I realized that both those escapes helped make that island and that place mine too in some way. My fingers on the keyboard showed me yet more. There were so many rescues and second chances. I began to see that these chapters from my life were indeed about survival, but it was also a story of grace. Not easy grace, hard grace, the kind you pray you'll survive. And there it was, the title and the paradox that came to shape the final story, Surviving the Island of Grace. Six months later, I finished the book. My stomach quivered. My index finger hovered over attach file. No one would publish it, I was sure. But I had learned so much in writing it, page by page. I punched send, and it was done. What would Kate think? I soon found out. Kate sent it out into the world immediately after receiving it. And then it began, a steady stream of rejections from the major New York publishers over the next two months. But then there was a yes from one of the New York Big Ten publishers. It was a hearty yes. Suddenly, Kate was great, and she said I was too. My first memoir, and surely my last, would soon be in bookstores around the country. But that's not the true happy ending to this story. When I began writing the memoir, reluctantly, I did not even know what I was looking for. The writing showed me. In the midst of roaring seas, the claustrophobia of an island with no escape, doubts of my own ability as a writer, words saved my life. Words carved out a space between land and sea where maybe I could hold fast. Writing, surviving the island of grace, brought me here to this moment. One morning, I sat on a distant beach on our island. I was alone except for the two ravens on a cliff above me spatting. Was I sorry I had chosen Duncan and this place and this very particular life that came with it? No. How could anything be other than it was? But when I chose all of this back in 1977, I did not know what I was choosing. I came here with Duncan at 20, running from a difficult childhood. I was certain I would find wholeness and freedom in him and in this island world. I looked around. It was still as wild and clean and vast a place as when I first came, but I hadn't known what to measure then. I know now that what I was looking for is not something that can be found, not in a place or in a person. Freedom and wholeness must be made and it is made out of whatever is around you. It is made out of whatever is given to you. Like the barnacles on the rocks around me. I looked at them closely. They were anchored to a massive rock, but they were moving. In each of them, the beak, like a tiny telescope, was rounding the perimeter of its own shell. There, halfway between land and water, was a creature that literally grows its own cliffed walls. His own form entraps him. It is his prison, his island. He cannot escape. But then I saw, it is also his mountain fortress, the very grace that sustains his life. When I finished writing Surviving the Island of Grace, I was hooked. <laughs> Once I started writing the truest words from my life that I could find, such clarity, discovery, and consolations have come to me. I don't ever want to stop. When we steward the beautiful burdens and difficult passages we've been given in our lives, 
we have another chance to reclaim and heal those burdens. I've seen it thousands of times in my own life and others. This is my work now, teaching others to do the same. And in all our stories, we who are stranded on islands and in strange places have found the words and the grace to write ourselves home. And a special thanks to Leslie Leyland Fields. To find out more about her work and also her teaching, go to lesliealandfields.com. I didn't know what I was looking for. The writing showed me. Words saved my life. Leslie Leyland Fields' story here on Our American Stories. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Everyday Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we are changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. Start your week with the Hello Monday podcast. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.